early in the book of Exodus, after it's been established that the nation of Israel had grown numerous in the land of Egypt and had been brutally subjugated as slaves, Exodus 2, 23-25 sets the stage for the rest of that book in this way. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The remainder of Exodus tells the familiar story. God raises up a leader for Israel to to lead them from Egypt. God attacks Egypt's stubborn king and indeed all of the nation with these terrible plagues of violence and pestilence of various kinds. God delivers his people Israel from bondage in the nation. And finally, God destroys the enemies of his people by drowning them in the sea. The reason I begin with the story of Exodus is that John's vision in Revelation 15 and 16 is clearly patterned after its images and even mirrors its story in some ways. In these two chapters, Revelation 15 and 16, we have two scenes or divisions of the text that communicate two plain and undeniable realities. God delivers his people and God destroys his enemies. God delivers his people, and God destroys his enemies. We're going to read the text according to these two major divisions and tell the story that unfolds in that way. So as we read, I want you to keep your eye out for references to the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Just make mental notes wherever you see something that may be an echo or an allusion to the story or events Uh, of the Exodus. So I'm going to read for you uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. That's the first scene, and then we'll, we'll pause and consider that together. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now we're introduced in verse 1 to seven angels with seven plagues, and then the scene shifts immediately to the saints in verses 2 through 4 before returning to those angels in verse 5. So I'm going to hold my comments on the angels and their plagues until we see them again in a few verses. So we're going to spend a couple of minutes looking at this scene in heaven with uh, the people of God. Now, remembering the context, 
falling on the heels of the judgment of God that fell upon the wicked at the end of chapter 14, what we are shown in chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, is the resulting reality. So these verses kind of are, are a hinge point from the verses, the, the passage that came before it, and a springboard into what comes after it. So it both sort of concludes the section before and opens the, the section after it. And so we had seen through chapters 12 to 14 this great drama sort of in the heavens that depicted a dragon and a woman giving birth to a child and these beasts emerging from the sea and from the earth and they made war on the, the seed of the, the woman, right? And all of that is a, is a dramatic, symbolic depiction of Satan and his allies, his tools, his agents in the world making war on the church, on the people of God. And it ended, if you'll recall, in chapter 14 with uh, the harvest of the earth. There was an angel with a sharp sickle and he harvested the, the vineyards of the earth and uh, put them into the wine press of God's wrath. And we have this very gruesome, bloody image of blood flowing from the wine press up to uh, as high as a horse's bridle for uh, a really long way. That's how chapter 14 ended. And so chapter 15 opens with the people of God in heaven having been delivered, right? And so the, the judgment that's just fallen upon the wicked is the precursor to this scene in chapter 15, verses one through four. Even though, as I'll suggest in a few minutes, uh, this passage also opens a new section in, in the book. So I want you to notice, first of all, the sea of glass mingled with fire. In verse 2, you see what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, in the Old Testament, the sea is often a symbol of, of violence and chaos. It's unruly. It's tempestuous. It's, right, it, it's beyond the sort of control of people. Uh, and, and so the, the ocean, the sea, is seen as this force, often of evil but always of, of chaos and fear and violence. And as we saw in chapter four, which was the first sort of vision into the throne room, where we saw God on the throne and around the throne, all these creatures, these angels and that, these different kinds of beings. And we saw there for the first time uh, that before the throne of God was a sea as glass, right? Like crystal, it said indicating that the powerful presence of God has calmed the raging waves of the sea. And so in God's presence, the chaos of the sea is still. That, that was the image from chapter 4, verse 6 specifically. And now in chapter 15, verse 2, it's not God who's seen before the crystal sea. Who is it? It's the saints. It's the, the church. And while the ESV that we read from this morning says that the saints are standing beside the sea of glass, the preposition here, epi, from the Greek, actually might more accurately mean on. So it could be a better translation to say that the, the, the people of God were standing on the sea of glass mingled with fire. They're not beside the sea, but they're on it. God has conquered his people's enemies and removed from them everything violent or frightening 
such that the terrible chaos of the sea has been calmed into stillness beneath their feet. That is a beautiful and powerful image to depict the presence of God and the peace that he has purchased for his people. But notice, the sea of glass is mingled with fire. It's not just a calm, still sea. There's still the presence of fire. Hebrews 12 tells us that our God is a consuming fire. So it's good to remember that the saints are in the presence of the blazing purity of God's holiness, but with nothing to fear. The presence of God's holiness is not to be feared when we are resting in Christ. And we know that it's the saints who are standing on the sea because we are told in verse 2 that they are those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. In other words, those who have been faithful in their uh, profession of faith in Jesus Christ, those who remained true and loyal to Christ and not succumbed to the pressures and the persecutions of uh, the powers in the world. And so it's the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, who are here on top of the sea of glass, God having stilled all of the chaos and violence under their feet. And what are they doing while they're standing on the sea of glass? Well, you won't be surprised. They're singing. This is a recurring image in the book of Revelation as well. Every time you see the gathered people of God in Revelation assembled around the throne in heaven, they are praising God in song, celebrating his salvation. And we're told here that the song they're singing is a medley of sorts sort of a conglomeration of songs. And, and, and we're told it's the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And so here's a, a reference, of course, to the Exodus story. When the, after the Israelites had safely reached the other side of the Red Sea and God had drowned the Egyptian army in those waters, they sang the song of Moses. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea was one of these kind of recurring refrains throughout that song. And here are the saints in heaven in light of God's judgment upon their enemies singing it again, but with a twist. You see, the song of Moses is now the song of the Lamb. Moses, the deliverer of Israel from slavery, is superseded by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the deliverer of his people. And the song, if you look at it, it's short, but the song centers on the justice and holiness of God. And it declares his eternal authority over all nations as the true king. All right, look at the words of this song in verses 3 and 4. Great and amazing are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear and glorify your name? You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the, the, the song of celebration that the saints on the sea of glass are singing, recognizing the power, the holiness, and the justice of God and his authority over all the nations. Friends, take heart. Whatever hardship fills your view today, this is your future. 
No matter how the devil tempts or torments you, the sea of glass will one day be beneath your feet. In the face of chaos and trial, remember, great and amazing are the deeds of the Lord, and he is your deliverer. Praise God. Well, verses 5 through 8 function as a transition from that scene. So we've got the scene uh, with the saints on the sea of glass with their harps singing and celebrating and worshiping God. And verses 5 to 8 turn the story back toward the angels that were introduced in verse 1. And so I'm going to read these transition verses. Look at verses 5 through 8. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So we're reintroduced to our angel friends from verse 1. And they are holding, or more accurately, they are given by the four living creatures, golden bowls full of the wrath of God. That sounds like a strange thing to carry around in a golden bowl. But I want you to notice some connections to elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Back in chapter 5, verse 8, as the fifth seal was broken, John saw the souls of the saints under the altar, the saints who had been martyred. He says, and they were calling out to God, how long, O Lord, until you deliver, until you enact vengeance for us, until you do justice on those who have wrongly uh, killed us. And God tells them, wait just a little longer until the full number of the martyrs comes in. But so there's the prayers of the saints under the altar, specifically prayers for vengeance, prayers for justice. And then... In chapter 8, verses 3 through 5, as the trumpets are about to sound, it says an angel from the altar, that is from where the saints have been praying, carried bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And uh, and he gave them to the, the, the angels who, excuse me, they poured them out onto the earth. And as he poured them out, the trumpets sounded. And so the judgments, the partial judgments that would fall upon the earth depicted by those trumpets, was an answer to the prayers of the saints. And so here again, we have the angels with this golden bowl. And I think we're supposed to see that connection and, and think to ourselves, these bowls, they contain the wrath of God, but they contain the wrath of God because of the prayers of his people. They are the prayers of his martyred saints and his oppressed people who have been asking for justice and asking for vengeance. And so the judgment of God upon the wicked is an answer to the cries of his people for justice and deliverance. Remember how Exodus started? The groaning of the people of Israel came up to God and God remembered his covenant. And here the, the prayers of his saints, his oppressed and often martyred people have risen to him. And in answer to their prayers, he will deliver judgment, justice, 
upon the earth. Now, before we read and get into the, the actual pouring out of these bowls in chapter 16, I want to give a word about the relationship between the bowls here and the trumpets of chapters 8 through 11 and the seals of chapters 6 and 7 that we read about a good long time ago. It's been a while. Um, they are, there's a lot of different sort of opinions and thoughts about how these things all relate to each other and different uh, good, godly, wise, bright Christian men and women see these things differently. So I just, I want to be not too dogmatic about this. But I, I want to say, as I've been arguing kind of throughout our time of Revelation, that these series of sevens, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls, are not to be seen as sequential, linear, chronologically successive events. As though there's seven seals that get opened, and then after that there's seven trumpets, and then after that there's seven bowls that all happen in a historical succession. I don't think that's what we see. I think that they that each of these series of seven is depicting the same period of time, namely the whole church age, the age of time between the ascension of Christ to heaven and his return to the earth, which is still yet future. And so this whole period of time, I believe, is covered, is spanned by each of these three series of seven. Just as a little reminder, the seven seals that we saw in chapter 6 and 7 revealed uh, four horsemen who carry various judgments to the earth and persecutions to the church. And they affect one quarter of the earth. Each of those things were said to have affected one quarter of whatever realm it was that the particular seal affected. Then in chapters 8 through 11, we see these seven trumpets that reveal temp temporal, temporal, excuse me, temporal partial judgments in history, and they function a bit as, as a warning. Even the, the notion of a trumpet is a, is a call to attention. It's a warning sound. And they, they function as a warning then of fuller judgment to come. And those trumpet judgments were said to affect one third of the earth. So you see, we've climbed from a quarter to a third. And the seven bowls that we're going to read about in chapter 16 reveal final complete, exhaustive judgment upon the wicked. So whereas the seal would affect a fourth and the trumpet would affect a third, these bold judgments are said to affect everything. And we'll see that as we walk through them uh, briefly. And there is an especially close relationship between the trumpets and the bowls. Right? I think there's this connection in terms of what the series of sevens is doing from seal to trumpet to bowl. But the trumpets and the bowls have an even closer uh, relationship, as we'll see. And each of these series culminate in Christ's return and final judgment. All right, so that, that's the way that I read this and I'm arguing for seeing uh, these series of sevens as cycles that are repeating the same span of time, the whole church age, if you will. Which leads us to the second scene, so let's read. I'm going to go ahead and read all of chapter 16, all right, which is 1 through 21. And then we'll talk about what we see here. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. 
The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits forming signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We're going to stop there and we'll get to the last few verses in just a few minutes. So we saw in the first four verses that God delivers his people. In these verses, what we see plainly is God destroys his enemies. God destroys his enemies. I want you to note the emphasis upon sinners deserving of these judgments. At least four times throughout these verses, we, are, we see a particular phrase indicating the justice, the rightness of God's judgment. In verse 6, probably the most plainly and sort of uh, baldly this is stated is by an angel who it says is in charge of the waters. He says at the end of verse 6, it is what they deserve. They shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. This is what they've deserved. So the angel announces and declares, God's judgment is right. It is true. It is correct. This is what sinners who've rebelled against God and taken the, the and, and, and succumbed to the worship of the beast and rejected the true king, this is what they deserve. And then the altar of God agrees. That could be the saints. We've seen the prayers of the saints under the altar. It could be another angel. We're not sure. But he says, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so second time there, an agreement. What God is pouring out on sinners is right and just. And then twice in verse 9 and 11, we are told specifically that people's response to these plagues, to these judgments, was not that they repented, but indeed that they cursed God. 
So in verse 9, it says, They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And then verse 11 says much the same thing. They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds, which reminds us of the result of uh, the response of people to the trumpet judgments. Back in chapter 9, verse 20, we were told there, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up the worshiping of demons and idols of gold and silver, and on and on it goes. And so the response of those who dwell on the earth, those who have received the mark of the beast or the number of its name, those who have worshiped the beast, they do not repent. And in fact, they are they dig their heels in all the more and curse God. That is the way that they respond to these judgments, which again points out to us the justice and the righteousness of these judgments that fall. Horrible as they are, violent as they are, they are right. God is just in delivering these judgments. Now, I want us to look, I've got to do this fast because we don't have all day to do this, but I want us to look at each of these bowls and point out specifically the connection to the trumpets that we saw in chapters 8 through 11. So they begin, so there's a loud voice from the temple that tells the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so, verse 2, the first angel poured his bowl on the earth. Harmful and painful sores come upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worship its image. Well, the first trumpet, which was back in chapter 8, verse 7, also affected the earth. It said the earth was burned and there was hail and there was fire and blood that came to the earth. So the same realm was affected by the first trumpet and the first bowl, namely the earth. And that rep reminds us of some of the plagues in Egypt. The sixth plague of, uh, of uh, hail and fire and the seventh plague of painful sores breaking forth on people. So each the trumpet and the bowl kind of picture for us one of these Egypt plagues. The second angel in verse 3 pours out his bowl onto the sea. And if you would recall, the second trumpet, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 8, that is the very same realm that is affected by the second trumpet. The trumpet uh, was blown and the, the sea uh, became blood. And it said a third of the sea creatures died. And when the bowl is poured out on the sea, it becomes blood and every living thing in it dies. So again, we see this intensifying sort of progression. And that all represents or reminds us of the first of the Egypt plagues, the water turned into blood. The third bowl in verse 4 was poured upon the rivers and the springs of water, so onto the fresh water, if you will, which is the same realm that the third trumpet affected in chapter 8, verse 10, the, the fresh waters. And again, all of that sounds like the first plague of Egypt as well. So it becomes blood. And then the fourth bowl, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And if you'll recall, the fourth trumpet in chapter 8, verse 12, affected also the sun and the moon and the stars. The trumpet caused a, a third of the sun uh, to go dark, whereas the bowl that 
is poured out on the sun causes the sun to scorch people with its heat. So again, an intensifying of the effect, but the same realm is affected by the fourth trumpet and the fourth bowl. The fifth bowl, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. If you were to look back at chapter nine, verse one, you would find that the fifth trumpet, it says, I, the, the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star falling from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And then the shaft of the bottomless pit is open and smoke comes from it. And then these locusts emerge from it, representing demonic attack and, and uh, oppression. And so we have the same realm here, although it's given to us now in terms of the beast who had not been introduced back in the trumpets, but now he's been introduced to us in chapters 12 through 14. And so now it's told that, that said that the bull is poured out on the throne of the beast. And so it's the same realm. It's, it's, it's the demonic realm. It's, it's, uh, it's the authority of Satan to do harm to those who live on the earth. And those sound like plagues eight and nine of Egypt. The trumpets, remember, even had locusts that come forward, and there was a, a locust plague in Egypt. And then when uh, the bowl is poured on the throne of the beast, it says his kingdom was plunged into darkness, and that sounds like the ninth plague in Egypt. And then we have the sixth bowl, and we have the most sort of lengthy description of the sixth bowl of, of any of these first six. And there's a lot to say about this, but I'm trying to squeeze as much in as I can manage. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And if you were to read through the trumpet judgments, you would find that in chapter nine, verse 14, the trumpet, the sixth trumpet affected the Euphrates as well. In fact, it said there that the, uh, the four angels that were bound at the river Euphrates were released to make way for the kings to come from the east. So the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl both have to do with the Euphrates River, which represents political uh, authorities and powers from the, the pagan world, if you will, to the, to the east of, of Israel, always seen as, as a, a fearful enemy of the people of God uh, during the Old Testament. Oh, and I also say, sorry, the, the way that, that it's depicted in, bowl, in, in the sixth bowl is that there's these demons like frogs, which pictures for us the second plague in Egypt, where frogs came unto, into the king's house and then all to the, the other, uh, across the nation, and they were just overrun with frogs. Well, here you have these three evil spirits that come from uh, the, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. So again, the, the second beast is named here as the false prophet. And from their mouths come these three evil spirits like frogs, and they go to work on the kings of the world. And we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. So, but you see that these plagues are very clearly picturing and even reusing, rehashing the, the plagues of Egypt that God had sent upon Egypt during the period of the Exodus. And the, the content of the sixth bowl has to do with the gathering of all of these kings of the world for a big battle on the day of the Lord. And we're told at the very, in the very last verse of that section, verse 16, they assembled at a place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. 
So this is one of those words and one of those ideas that's become sort of, that's kind of infiltrated popular culture and popular ideas about Christian theology, the battle of Armageddon, right? There's gonna be this giant climactic sort of war between all of the, 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 the world and the devil and his forces and all of God and his angels and his forces and they're gonna have this big clash and who's gonna win? It's gonna be you know, good versus evil. So we, we have these images probably a lot like a, a fantasy movie where you have these like scores and scores and scores of people clad in their various, you know, old fashioned, uh, you know, chain mail and whatnot and yielding axes and, and they're going on this battlefield together, right? That's what we think of when we think of the battle of Armageddon. It's not going to be very much like that, according to uh, this passage. I want us to see that. But the notion of a great battle of pagan nations of the world against Israel, against the people of God, was well known to the Old Testament's readers. The prophets foretold a great day of battle at the end of history in a number of places. In Zephaniah 3, in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, but especially in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. I'm going to look at a couple of verses here. Zechariah 14, 2, God says through Zechariah, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Zechariah 12, 3 and 4 says, all the nations of the earth will be gathered together against it. That is against the, the kingdom of, of Israel. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and only goes. Zechariah 12, 2 says, I will remove from the land the prophets and the unclean spirit, which is an interesting parallel to what we see in that sixth bowl, isn't it? Where the, the unclean spirit comes forward from the mouth of the false prophet. God said back in Zechariah 12, 2, I will remove the prophet and the unclean spirit. And so there is a notion to the Old Testament reader and thus to John's readers of Revelation of a battle at the end of history where God is going to finally defeat uh, all of his enemies and the enemies of the people of God. And so when the, the, the frog-like spirits are released, in chapter 16, verse 13, they go after uh, the kings of the world, right? It says they are, they are sent out to gather the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And so clearly John's readers would see this as, oh, this is the day that God's been talking about. This is the day that God prophesied to us through Zephaniah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. This is the great day of the Lord where these kings of the earth are going to come to do battle against God and his people. And so the, these unclean spirits go out and they gather the people, the kings of the world, these political authorities uh, to come and make war. If you were to look ahead a couple of chapters, chapter 19, verse 19, he says, I saw the kings of the earth gathered together to make war. And then in chapter 20, verse 8, he says, Satan will come out to deceive the nations, to gather them together for the war. So there is this notion of a war that's to come at the very end. The kings of all the earth, which Greg Beale calls the political authorities of the ungodly world system, they believe they are gathering to make war on the people of God, right? That, that, that's what, they're, uh, what they believe they're doing. And I think that they've actually been deceived to believe this by these demonic spirits that go out to gather them. Come and let's fight against God and his people. 
But really, the one who is ultimately said to gather them is not the unclean spirits or even the dragon himself, but God. God will gather them. That's what he said back in Zechariah 14 too, right? I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. I will strike every horse with panic, right? God is the one behind the deceiving of the unclean spirits. And they think they're gathering to go and fight and put an end to the church, to put an end to the people of God. But really, God is the one doing this gathering. And he's gathering them together, not to enact some war where the angels are going to have this big bloody clash uh, and try to overpower the forces of evil. It is God who has gathered them for the purpose of visiting his judgment upon them through his son. It is the Lord Jesus who will be the agent of this judgment. Because you see in verse 15, who is speaking here? Behold, I'm coming like a thief. That's Jesus. This is the return of the king. This is almighty Jesus, the lamb, the lion, who is returning and he's coming with vengeance. So the people, the, the kingdoms of the earth, the kings of the world are gathered and they think they're going to do war against God and his people. Then it'll be like that. The son is simply going to inflict judgment upon them. And that is how it will end for them. I want us to pause here at verse 15 and consider this because indeed the, the vision of John is kind of interrupted by this statement from Christ in verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may go about, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. In chapter 7, the 144,000 who were the redeemed people of God, the, the whole church, were seen coming out of the tribulation in white robes. And an angel said of them there, they have washed their garments and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And in chapter 19, verse 8, if you were to look ahead a little bit, the saints are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb are wearing, quote, fine linen, bright and pure, which represent the righteous deeds of the saints. So the garments in the blessing of 1615, which believers are exhorted to keep on, are the purity of the saints because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So when he says, keep your garments on, what's he saying? Stay true to me. Stay faithful. This blessing is an exhortation to remain faithful in our allegiance to Jesus in the face of such devastating pressure and persecution. James 1.27 says uh, that true religion is about uh, taking care of the widow and the orphan. And then he says, and keeping oneself unstained from the world. Jude one twenty one exhorts Christians to keep yourselves in the love of God. And thus the one who remains faithful to Jesus will not be naked or exposed, right? Meaning he will not be put to shame in front of his enemies and indeed in the presence of God himself. And so this is the third of seven blessing statements in the book of Revelation. We saw at the very beginning that blessed is the one who 
uh, reads uh, aloud the words of this prophecy and keep, keeps what's written here. And we saw uh, the second blessing just last week. And my mind just went blank and I don't know where it was. Anyway, we saw the second blessing last week. And then we see this third one right here. Blessed is the one who keeps his garments on, who stays awake, stay true to Jesus Christ. There'll be four more of those blessing statements to come. And so that's what's going on in the sixth bowl, right? God has assembled the kings of the world for this battle on the great day of the Lord. And now here's what's going to happen to him in the seventh bowl. Let's read, read verses 17 through 21 and hear how this, this battle goes. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. The battle didn't go too well for the kings of the world. They've assembled, they've gathered, they're ready to fight, and God just unloads his wrath on them, and there is nowhere for them to go. They cannot hide, they cannot fight back, they cannot argue, they cannot talk their way out of it. There is no battle. God simply pours out his wrath, and it's over. His enemies are destroyed. And you hear this loud voice from the throne, God, the lamb saying it is done that's how this battle went and there's an earthquake of unprecedented scale and power the great city that's jerusalem is split into three and all the cities of the nations that's these ungodly uh rebel cities and governments they fall and then Babylon, representing the whole worldly system, the whole throne of the beast, Babylon drinks the wine of God's wrath. The islands flee and mountains flee away, and there's no place for them. Giant hail falls and crushes people. It's the whole, the, the cosmos is falling apart, as it were. And the enemies of God are destroyed. And again, we see as all of these judgments are falling and as the wrath is coming, 21, and they cursed God. They cursed God. Their hearts were hardened against him and no amount of warning, no amount of partial judgment can hold back the wrath of God against them or turn their hearts in repentance and so the scene ends with the seventh bull having completed the wrath of God against sinners. God delivered his people. God destroyed his enemies. That's the content of chapter 15 and 16, and the content of these bull judgments. Well, I want you to notice 
again, that phrase in chapter 16, verse 17, it is done. It's a declaration from the throne concerning the judgment of God, the defeat of his enemies, and the final deliverance of his people. And that cry of it is done rests upon another similar cry. It is finished. In that case, the cry of the lamb came not from a throne, but from a cross. And the judgment of God's enemies was not visited upon uh, kings of the world, but upon his son, Jesus, who hung on that tree in our place for our sins, as God judged our unrighteousness. And the deliverance of his people was not from oppressing political powers, but from the tyranny of sin and its penalty. When Jesus called out from the cross, it is finished. He declared that the decisive work of the kingdom had been accomplished. The key to the ultimate victory of God and his people had been obtained. Just as Israel's deliverance from bondage relied upon God's provision of a deliverer in Moses, so our deliverance from sin and death relies upon God's provision of a Savior in Jesus Christ. And as our deliverance from sin and death has been secured for us in the atoning death of Jesus on that cross, so our future victory and deliverance from the oppressing powers of this world and the tormenting presence of the devil have been secured. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea, cried the people of Israel, singing the song of Moses. And through persevering faith in Jesus Christ, our deliverer, our conquering hero, we will one day join the song of the redeemed for all the ages, singing together, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Let's pray.